Um, hey, you guys. How's everybody? Uh, what a great start uh, to um, tonight. I, I did my best to wear my best uh, Carson fit tonight. I'm going to try and, and fit in. And uh, I am, I'm very excited about, uh, about tonight. I, I wanted to be here um, very badly because of what, you know, what this particular um, concept means to me, has meant to me, um, and what I hope that it will mean to you. Uh, you'll have to forgive me. I've got like, my hope for my voice will hold out um, tonight. And I've just been, you know, I've been not doing a thing all day, but waiting for this um, tonight. So I want, um, when I began, you know, Carson mentioned last week, God is real. I thought he did a great job talking about that, what we see, how we see things. Uh, and then tonight we were going to add to this idea that God is relational. And this actually matters to you. A lot of people go, yeah, 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 yeah. Like that, that'll be kind of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. It matters because when you sing a song like you're never going to let me down, and you're wrestling to see if that's actually true for you. Has God ever actually let you down? Will he actually let you down? You know people who would say that. It's part of one of Carson's reasons last week why they believe that God isn't real, because he's done something or allowed something that they just can't fathom that he would be like this. When you think about God being relational and you think about what he's actually doing in the world, the implication, what the implications of that are, this is where it matters um, to us. And so I wanna begin, I wanna ask you a question. Um, and as students, college students, you know, you guys are, some of you guys are just out of college, kind of walking into you know, the grad school or the real world or whatever you would call it. <clears throat> I'm not sure the real world is actually. But I wanna ask you if you believed or thought or considered, would you like to find God faithful a decade from now? Would you hope somewhere inside of you that after you're you know, 20, you know, 33, 35, you know, 31 years old, whatever your age you'd be, 29 years old, um, that you would believe or find God more faithful or just find him to be faithful at that point in your life? So I wanna pray for us. I need to give you two, two ideas tonight based on God's intention, and for that, we're gonna have to go back to the beginning. So we'll begin in uh, Genesis chapter one. Father, I thank you for um, the time we have to be together. What we just sang, the things we declare, that we belong to you, all these different lyrics and um, ideas that we, we, we desperately want to be true. So I ask that you would use our time tonight to help um, us to find some footing for that, that you would work in our lives to draw us um, into what you long for us to experience with you. And out of that, Father, would, would these other kind of bedrock foundations of hope that does not disappoint, um, would they become just drivers for us from this day forward? So I ask you to give me clarity of thought, uh, strength of my voice um, for this time tonight. And I ask this name of your son, Jesus, who is our King. Amen. Uh, so I've been married uh, to my wife, Julie, for over 30 years. Um, I met her in the second grade. Uh, we went to our senior prom together. We dated uh, in uh, high school. We dated uh, in college. And so as I was getting into college, and I remember distinctly when I realized that I loved Julie. <clears throat> I tried to avoid it because we were good friends. 
Like we were really good friends. And you know what that's like, right? You can't date your friends. Because God knows why would you be married to someone you actually like for a long time. But that's a whole other story. I remember just thinking, we're so good. We're, we're such good friends. I don't want to blow this. I don't want to mess this up. But I remember like being in her driveway one day and I was walking away. I thought, oh my gosh, I love Julie Austin. That was her maiden name. I love Julie Austin. And I can't shake this. So the next thing I know, we're dating and then you're kind of in too deep and you don't know what to do. So I thought, you know what? I'm in college. I don't think it's wise for me to know the person I'm going to marry while I'm in college. I was a Christian but I thought it's time for me to go sow some wild oats to do some things, to try to see what else is out there, right? You know, you know what this is like. Some of you dated someone like this. You're going, yep, my boyfriend has done that exact dumb thing before. And so I came up with this plan that I was going to break up with her. This is back in uh, 1989, maybe 1990. And we didn't have texting or phones or anything like that. So I decided um, I was gonna write her a note. I know. It's terrible, but that's what I did. I've not always been the dapper gentleman you see before you today. And so I, I write her this note, and Julie, Julie adores me. So at least I think she does. So I write this note. Basically, it's the it's not you, it's me thing, right? You know what I'm talking about. Some of you, are, you know, you're, you've texted a breakup, which is way worse than writing a note. So I write her this note, and I'm prepared, man, because Julie is like, she's an emotional person. And you do not want to break her heart. So I'm prepared. I'm like, there's going to be tears, but I'm resolved. There's going to be no backing down. So she can cry. She can beg me to come back. All that. I'm not, I'm not caving. So I get to the point. I hand her the note. She opens it up. She starts reading it. Stone-faced. I'm like, did I give her the right note? I'm like checking my pockets to make sure I didn't give her like, you know, Stone-faced, no tears, no drama, no nothing. She folded the letter back up. She says, I'll give you 24 hours to think about this. I was like, oh, was not expecting that. The only thing I could think of is what does she know that I don't know? What does she see that I don't see? So it didn't take me 24 hours. It took me about... Six hours, I came back and said, that note I gave you, I don't want any part of it. We've been together ever since, right? So my point is this. There's a perspective, a thing that you have in your life, in your world, and it will happen. You're gonna want and see and think that, oh, if I did this or if I did that, if I chased this, if I got that, then this would be, you know, I'd kind of get my cake and eat it so I would get everything that I actually wanted. And you're gonna begin to question God in that. Is God really the one? If you're faithful to him, is he really going to do the kinds of things and provide the kind of things for you, to provide the way of life for you that you actually want? And so for us to wrestle with this, we've gotta go back um, to the beginning. And in the beginning, you'll know there were these, um, is this on? There we go, perfect. You guys are awesome. Um, there are these two trees in the garden, right? You know this. And these two trees aren't just uh, you know, something that we learned about. They're actually very important for how we think about and how we experience the world around us. Is that like a tree to y'all? Perfect. I went to five years of architecture school on how to draw a tree. And if you remember, um, in the beginning, God had fashioned all that we see. He created and divided the light from the dark. 
And he divided the sky from the sea below. He divided the expanse of the oceans and he created the atmosphere. And he divided the seas and he created land. And then he put um, critter, uh, you know, creepy crawlies and animals and fish in the sea and birds in the air. All this that happened. Then on the sixth day, and this is how we'll read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and uh, 28. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's an intimacy that you're gonna see if you read the whole section here, which we're not gonna have time to do. Not, there's an intimacy to this. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Pick up in verse 31. And it says, God saw all that he had made and it was what? It was very good. It was very good. There was an evening, there was a morning, there was a sixth day. This whole place was created with this idea of what the Hebrews called, the Hebrew people called shalom. We translate the word peace, which is okay, but it's insufficient. So what began to happen in the garden, if you follow this closely, God intended us, when he invites us, and he says, I made mankind in my image, I want for you to subdue and to rule and to exercise dominion. God's intention is this. God intended you as a human being, me as a human being, to participate with him in what he had made. Okay, most of you are going, okay, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people don't really wrestle with this deeply enough. So God invites us to participate with him. He goes on, and just to kind of set the scene up, Genesis chapter two, um, it says that he fashions, he recounts the story, he fashions uh, the man, Adam, the human, out of the, the clay. He gets his hands dirty, he fashions the clay, and he breathes into him the breath of life. He becomes a living being. A few verses later in verse 15, this is what you see. Then the Lord took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it, just like he had commissioned him, called him, invited him to do. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Y'all have heard this before, right? Two trees. Uh, it's mentioned a few verses earlier. The first tree is in the center of the garden. It's called what? The tree of, you've seen this in the middle of animal kingdom if you've been there. The tree of life. The other tree that we were just forbidden to eat from is called what? The tree of Knowledge, the tree of knowledge, the tree of knowledge of both good and evil. What's the big deal? Is God really that like, is it like, don't touch the stove and I can't think about anything else but touching the stove? Like, what is this? What would God do this? There's, there's, there's two separate ways that we've been invited or, or led to live. And this is what a lot of us get stuck in. This is what I wanna explain. There's a way of life that God has intended for us. And there's another way that we get to take sort of on our own devices. For those of you who love the predestination debate, is God sovereign and does he determine what shirt I was gonna wear tonight or whatever it is that you think his sovereignty means, we're gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you why this, this matters. Because when you think about what happened, what died in this? If you eat of this tree, you will die. And they weren't struck dead. 
That didn't happen. So what actually happened? What died? What happened when this way of life became a thing for us? What I actually believe for God to love us the way he loves us, he has to allow us a choice. When he created us in his own image and he invited us to participate and he entrusted us with work and authority and dominion and rule and creative ability, that never went away. That never went away. You have been entrusted with dominion over your life, the effect of your life on other people and the world around you. And so he invites us, right, to participate with him in this. The problem is, underneath this, this creates a system, and this system is governed by the law. And this doesn't sound too bad at the beginning, except what the law essentially does is it creates a system of arrangements, right? Um, sort of a way of thinking about life where whatever happens on one side has to be balanced out on the other side. You're gonna see this to kind of unfold. There's sort of a system or an arrangement here. And you all have these in your relationships. You have these in your dating relationships. You have these in all sorts of ways. Carson office last night, in this system, what you are always using as the main way to determine truth is evidence. And then everything that happens out of that is proof, right? You have to prove something to be so. This is all based on what you do. Everything is based on this. When, when we get into this idea of proof, and you know what this is like, um, some of you have, you have a, a, a boyfriend or maybe a girlfriend, somebody that you don't trust very much, and they tell you they are somewhere. They tell you they're gonna be somewhere, and what do you do? You put your phone, you look up on Find My Friends, you're like, whew, they are actually there. Anybody ever done that to somebody that you, you should ought to trust? And what, what is that? That's death. It's the death of a relationship. When you can't learn how to trust, when everything has to be proven and everything is based on what you do or what you don't do, it's death. And this is how so many of us have just become so comfortable living. The value in this system becomes essentially fairness. You can't do that to me because that's not fair to me. And then everything gets resolved in some sort of solution. And what that usually entails is if you don't treat me fairly, I'm gonna punish you. You're gonna be punished by either the silent treatment, you're gonna be punished by breaking up with him, you're gonna be punished by doing, you know, I'll have, I'll have another best friend or whatever it is, but all of our relationships end up being governed in this system. This is what happened. God has designed us. What the fall did, and I think we gotta stop, that what the, the, the fall, sin entered the world. Sin did not break a rule. Sin broke a relationship. It is not a bad deed or a broken rule. Sin is a fundamental disregard for God and for his intention. That's what it is. It broke a relationship. That's what death is. If God has made you for himself, if he has created you for himself, then you will never find meaning and purpose apart from that. And so we're trying to learn how can we trust this? How can we learn how to live within this sin? And this sort of the classic way, this idea of what shalom actually means is shalom is for everything to be rightly related with everything else. 
And the way this is classically thought of is that shalom has sort of four aspects to it. Number one is that we broke our relationship with God. Number two is we broke our relationship with ourselves. And I'll just try to sketch this up there. Number three is we broke our relationship with others, with one another, with each other. And then number four is we broke our relationship with the world around us, the way in which we interact with the world, through our work, our vocation, through our leisure, through all those things. All of these things were broken in the fall. That is why the world is the way it is. It's not because God is like some kind of puppet master up there making, it's because the world is broken and sin was what broke it. And the trajectory of sin is always death. Every time something separates you in any relationship you have, the trajectory is always going to be death. It's gonna be the opposite of shalom, the opposite of where everything is rightly related to everything else. What you have to understand is that the most fundamental thing about God is that he is fundamentally relational. To be a God who is love means that his love has to have a trajectory. He has to have uh, an extension towards something. There's an object of his love and that makes him relational. When he came to, to be with us, when he came to redeem us, to return us, that's what he did. He came in the form of his son, Jesus. He got his hands dirty to be relational. He didn't execute a plan from the distance. And what God and what you see throughout the Old Testament, what you see throughout uh, the New Testament is God's intention still holds true. He still intends for you and I to live under this rule of life, which looks like this. Number one, this is a rule of love. And I, I get more conversations around this because this seems lightweight. <clears throat> the fundamental value isn't a system, but it is the way in which a person, a human being, relates to another person, or in this matter, the way we relate to God, how God relates to us. Underneath this, this is what Carson did such a great job with last, last week. A lot of you are waiting on the right amount of evidence to seal it once and for all that God is real and He exists. And what God relentlessly and stubbornly invites us into is that we walk not by sight, but we walk by faith. It's to learn how to believe. Do you know why? Because the foundation of a relationship isn't that you know from you find my friends that that person where they said they were. The essence of a relationship is that you trust that person because that's what they said they were gonna do. It's this, this idea of trust because this system over here isn't about what we do. This, is, this system over here is about who we are, and maybe as importantly, who we are becoming. God is forming us into his image. That's how we've been created, to bear his image. And what this all has to do is because the thing is, none of this, none of this protects us from the effects of what's happened in the world. I get it. The thing that makes me so sad, brokenhearted for the next generation is the amount of pressure that has just gotten driven back to your age group. And really a lot of you guys have been dealing with stuff since you were in middle school. And it's just been a weight and it's just been an avalanche of one thing after another. And so you get to college and you try to wash your hands and pretend like everything's new, but somehow it's not. And we try to figure this out for ourselves. So this idea that what happens in this, this idea, we, we learn how to trust over here. And this, this is essentially the challenge. Because what the value over here of the world system is always fairness. And you know this, this is why people talk about, well, I don't wanna get into it, but, but we all try to make sure that everything is like fair and even, and it's never like that. 
Because what's happening over here in this way of life is God has a much different value system. He has said, I've come to give you life and give it to the full. Which doesn't mean finding solutions to problems when fairness is violated. It means understanding that redemption is God's intention all along. The two big ideas is that God is relational and that his relationship means that he is redemptive. Redemptive work is relational. All of us understand redemption. You all understand redemption. Has anybody seen Lion King? Yes? How many of you like, let let me see your hands if you've seen Lion King. So you know the story. Okay, so Simba, right? Scar, Mufasa, begins with like a baby dedication. And then this baby dedication. And then Simba is to assume his rightful place in the throne. But Scar begins to kind of get in and manipulate and tries to make things bad. You know what happens? There's a stampede. And Mufasa is, Simba's in the middle of the stampede. And Mufasa rescues him and he is trampled to death um, in the uh, in the process of rescuing his son. And Scar lets Simba believe that he's responsible. So Simba's like, you know, run away. I mean, Scar's like, run away, Simba. So Simba runs away, finds Timon and Pumbaa, and he's like Hakuna Matata. He's never going back, getting away from the way things were. But the interesting thing about it is, you know, Simba has this whole kind of encounter with Nala, and he returns back to Pride Rock, and you know, yada, yada, yada. Y'all know the story, right? You know the interesting thing about it? Mufasa is still dead. That's redemption. Redemption doesn't gloss over the hard and painful things that you've experienced. The thing about what God is doing, what he's called us to do, what he's done for us is to take the worst things that have happened to us, sometimes the worst things we've done to other people, and somehow miraculously he causes them, he uses them for his return, to return all of us back to the way that we have been intended. What that means is rather than being ashamed of what you have done or ashamed of what has happened to you, what redemption means is that he comes to you and he gets, he he doesn't try to undermine or mask or minimize it, but he takes that very thing and he asks, will you trust me with it? Will you trust me with it? This language is throughout the scriptures. It's, it's, it's amazing that the, the gospel, God is relational, so is redemption. He didn't execute this plan from a distance. And we talk about, right, this idea, well, I don't have time to get into that, but Ephesians chapter one, verse 13, I want you to see this. This is one of, my, one of the most mind-blowing passages. It's, it's out of a translation that a lot of people don't use anymore, the New American Standard, but I love this translation. It says, in him, in Christ, After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed in him, after having listened to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, that Jesus has come to you and he has come for you, that he has come to forgive you of your sins, not so that you have a clean slate and promise not to do it anymore, but so that you have been reconciled to a relationship with the Father. Do you realize that so many of us grow up thinking that the gospel is that Jesus came and he wants to save you so that you get into heaven when you die? That is not at all the way the gospel is presented to us in the scriptures. Did you know that? 
Jesus came to bring you salvation, to reconcile you to the relationship for which you have been created. And everything that he is doing is working to return you to that rule of God's love. So look at what he says. Having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, who is guaranteeing that what God has promised is going to come to fruition. And he says this, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Do you know that when God sees your brokenness, when he sees your dashed hopes, when he sees your disappointments, he sees them with a view to the redemption where you belong to him fully and finally and forever free. The problem when you try to live in this kind of system is you are never, ever, ever free. You're never free. <clears throat> One more example. When, when we think about this idea of living under the rule of God's love, people say, oh, if God's already forgiven me, I can just do whatever I want. Well, if that's what you say, you don't really understand God's grace, nor do you really understand God. You actually understand this system. Because you're basically saying, if I get a get-out-of-jail-free card, then I'll just do whatever I want to do. This system over here, this rule over here doesn't act like that. I always use this example. I asked the question, I said, I've been married again 30 years. There's a, one of the 10 commands um, says, thou shalt not commit adultery. You know that command, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. So I asked people, I said, how do you think that that command has sway, has authority in my marriage? And most people are like, well, yes, of course it does. And I say, no, it doesn't. You mean you can commit adultery? Nope. We have never come home, right? Hey, Julie, how was your day? Good. How was your day? Good. Did you commit adultery today? No. Did you? Nope. Woo, we got a great marriage. That's never happened. Why? What if the only reason I was faithful to her is because God's gonna kill me if I'm not? How do, what does that do for her? Right, what so, so at some point in time, it's not the law, it's not this system anymore. It's that, what, wow, why would I ever do that to her? Right, you're, you're the person that I want. You're the person I like. Like it's a whole different way of thinking. This, this rule of God's love is for us to see him and to know him and to respond to him. So when we think about this idea of redemption, this is what I want for you guys to consider tonight. If you think about what it's gonna be like for you to find God faithful 10 years from now through whatever it is that you've been through, that he sees you with the view of his redemption. Redemption is the return to God's original design and God's original intention. He has designed you to live rightly related to him, rightly related to yourself, and in that the reconciliation to others and then to the way in which you relate to the world. This is what he is always doing. He's not trying, this, this is why I, I, I believe so deeply in God's sovereignty without believing in God's predestination. The reason this is because God intended for us 
to participate with him in the beginning, and he still invites us to participate, intends for us to participate with him today. You have a say in how you're going to be and how the world is going to be. And he is working redemptively all the time, all over the place. What this takes for me and you, what this requires of us is actually really, really simple. Redemption doesn't mean that everything automatically works out. Redemption simply means that nothing is ever wasted. That nothing, that, that somehow miraculously God uses everything. He's returning you and I to live relationally with him under this rule of love, to respond to him out of his love for you, out of his love for me. He's always inviting us to trust him. He's always inviting us to trust him. The thing that to me makes this so hopeful, this has been my journey for the last seven or eight years, but the thing that makes this so compelling to me is that it means that everything that I do actually matters. Not whether or not God's gonna punish me or something bad's gonna happen, but it matters in terms of God's redemptive work here in the world. Every relationship, every action, every word, everything that I do, you're going to school actually matters. Why? Because he's invited you to participate with him. He's not waiting for you to get out of school so he can use you to do something that, he, that you think he wants you to do. He's using this all along the way because there's redemptive activity in the way that we love other people all the way around us, all around us all the time. And so what I would say to you, and this is what happened to me. Remember years ago, the church had gotten um, you know, kind of big, as you can kind of tell. Um, and, and I didn't, um, I wasn't like a lot of people. I, didn't, I never thought that I deserved this or had this figured out. I've been invited to go with a bunch of uh, <clears throat> pastors up to this conference, and I was in this kind of really small setting with them. These are guys that read their books. I'd learned from them. I was like so like, I felt so out of place being there. And we're there and we're going through this whole thing. And, and I remember just talking about the church, all these different things. And I came back to the church realizing, oh my gosh, I'm kind of in over my head. So I came in, I usually park back here behind my office. I just pull in back there. I drove all around the building. I came here and I parked in the back and I sat down in my car and I just thought, what have I done? It wasn't a question. It was a full-on panic attack. What have I done? I want out. I'm moving to St. John. I'm gonna make hammocks. I'm done. Like all the emotions kind of came out of me. Have you ever had a panic attack before? You just feel like you're in over your head? Like nothing's gonna work out? Like I don't know how this is gonna turn out. I don't know what I'm saying. I got all these people who think that I know what I'm doing as their pastor and I have no earthly idea. What have I done? What I learned in that moment was it had nothing to do with what I had done or what I would do. It had everything to do with who I would trust. What I learned in that moment, and this, this, is, this to me is what keeps me in the game, and I believe this is what will keep you in the game. When you can't figure out how everything's gonna work out, because Lord knows Simba ran away and he's like Hakuna Matata, and that's the easy thing to do. When you can't figure out, when you can't figure out 
how this is going to work out. When you can't figure out, you know, what, what I'm You be faithful with the thing that is in front of you. All you have to do is to be faithful in the moment that you are in. Do you know how freeing that is? Because here's what happens when you do that. We're going to sing a song in just a minute called The Goodness of God. And the line says, all my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. And I don't think it takes rocket scientists. Most of you, nobody in here is 50, are you? Okay, you will be in a very short amount of time, faster than you imagine. When I was 25 or when I was 30, when this, you know, 35, when this panic attack happened, I remember thinking, all I have to do is to be faithful with the thing that is in front of me. And I look back into my 20s and all the uncertainty and all the fear that I had then, I said, all I have to do is be faithful with what's in front of me. And what you do is you learn to be faithful with what's in front of you, faithful in the moment, day after day after day after day after day after day. When you're 51 or 52 years old, you'll be able to look back and say, all my life you have been faithful. So we're gonna sing this song. And maybe for you tonight, God has been so faithful to you. What I want for us to do is to sing this, to declare this as more of a declaration, to think about your life a decade from now. And think about what it would be like for you to have understood God's love for you and what He's asking of you and what He longs for you. And to recognize that the way you get there isn't by trying to obey and I don't wanna sound like that, isn't trying to, to, to prove to God how committed or how serious you are, or how sorry you are for what you did yesterday or last night or whatever it is. Rather, you learn to walk with Him, to participate with Him, not by more promises to do or not to do, but by learning how to be faithful to Him in the moment that you are in with the thing that is in right in front of you. That makes it so much more accessible and so much more freeing. And what you will be amazed at is when you would sing this song 10 years from now, how much richer it will be simply because you learn to be faithful with what's happening right in front of you. God is relational and redemption is relational work. And this is what He invites you into every single day as He is returning you to the life that He intends for you to have, to rule and to reign in your mind and your heart with your hands and your feet to extend that in the relationships that you have, right? To offer yourselves for the work of your hands that God is calling you and leading you into. And the way you get that isn't by figuring out the plan and then executing it. The way you get that is you learn how to be faithful to Him in the moment with whatever is right in front of you. Is there a relationship that you seem to be faithful with? Maybe it's your own personal kind of devotion time. Maybe it's connecting with somebody. Whatever, just what is it that God wants you to be faithful with that's in front of you? Just do that thing. And 10 years from now, you'll say, all my life, you've been faithful. God, all of my life, you have proven to be so, so good. Now, I don't want you to miss it, right? Because you made too much or you were too complicated. Just do what is in front of you. Father, would you... 
Help us. I pray you would give these students a vision, not an overwhelming vision, but just the simple freedom of being able to say, yep, this is what's in front of me. This is how I can be faithful here. Father, you've come to dwell with us and to return us to be your own dwelling. You see every hardship that we have experienced through the lens of your redemption as we become your people. Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness to us, to me. And God, would your faithfulness to us be matched in our faith to you. What a good God, loving Father. Ask all these, Father, all these things, in the name of your Son, Jesus.